0: Radio drone. Thursday night is upon us. Brad is not, unfortunately. He's at some nerd con or something. I don't know. He thinks he's talking to pseudo-celebrities. Anyway, I'm Josh Hadley. As always, the Marquis de Suede is with us.
1: Yes, I am. Even when I'm not here, I'm still here, apparently.
0: And you sound a lot like De Hagen, apparently. And mm-hmm. we also have a couple of special guests this week. We have returning, we have Mike Robinson, a.k.a. Mr. X.
2: What's happening everybody?
0: I'm glad you got off the island.
2: Oh, goodness gracious.
0: And joining us for the first time on Radio Drome is Cecil from Good Bad Flicks.
2: Hi, how are you?
1: Alex, do you know the Adam and Eve promo? Drome. Go to adamandeve.com, use the promo code DROME. You get 50% off a single item, free shipping in the United States
0: for using the promo code DROME. So tonight we're going to be discussing a man in a man in Hollywood who is both a genius and kind of a what's that word you like to use Mike uh
2: hustler? Hustler rat bass something to that extent?
0: Something like that. Charles Band. What was your first encounter with Charles Band Pre Full Moon?
3: Uh Pre Full Moon uh that would have to be Either ghoulies or robot jocks kind of prompted me to fall in love with this stuff and start going and searching out, like looking for all these really weird titles, uh, you know, From Beyond, Rawhead Rex, all these, you know, all the the old, anything that had the Empire symbol on it I was hunting for.
2: Well, of course, the gold standard. There was this uh, interesting looking black box at the video store with this really intense guy holding a green vial of fluid. It would be reanimator.
1: Mine would definitely be Ghoulies, which my parents took me to in theaters thinking, hey, we thought this was just some fun movie about cute monsters popping out of the toilets. They went to that Expecting Gremlins.
2: Yeah, As well they should.
1: <laughs> and they got mad, and I was like,
2: this is awesome. But that, to be fair,
1: Expecting
0: Gremlins is kind of what Band wanted you to do with that movie, wasn't it?
1: Yes, that's exactly what he wanted.
0: <laughs> so, Charles Band son of Albert Band, who made a lot of, I don't know if we'd call them exploitation films, but they were at the time in the 60s. Charles Band came up basically growing up on movie sets. And I would consider him, in all honesty, a protege of Roger Corman who never actually worked for Roger Corman. Because in all honesty, New World Pictures was was his chief rival through all of this. So I would consider them enemies, actually. But he was an innovator. He came up with a lot of things that we now consider standard, such as home video. He, when he started Media Home Entertainment, later becoming Media Home Entertainment, he was the first person to say people want to not only watch a movie multiple times, but they'd like to own it too.
3: Yeah, I mean, it was, it was such a, a crazy concept at the time. I was friends with a girl who worked at the video store, and it was just insane because there was that time where a VHS tape would be like $150. And there were still people that wanted to to buy them. They would actually wait until they got used so much that they put them out for sale and then people were buying the used tapes. And I think he really kind of saw that there was a market for it and really started, you know, making movies that were filling that void for the for the VHS market. I mean, they were making movies hand over fist because the market was just ridiculous like with uh, when all the mom and pop show, shops opened and then Blockbuster opened, they just couldn't crank out movies fast enough. Yeah, I mean, he was definitely an innovator for that.
0: And to be fair, all the stuff that he did on Media Home, or Media Home Entertainment, was stuff that got a theatrical release. A lot of people don't seem to remember that Dream Maniac, Vicious Lips, Walking the Line, The Alchemist. They don't remember that these were fairly wide, 700, 750 theater releases. It truly was a different time, wasn't
2: it? Yes, it was. And I can easily attest to that because uh, we used to have a local theater in Detroit called the Norwest, which was basically, I don't feel like dealing with my kids for the next eight hours, so I'm going to stuff them in this theater that shows a triple feature. And that's literally the kind of movies that place got. It would have that. It would have Terror Vision. It would have literally any movie you could get its hands on and play three of them in a row just basically to entertain a bunch of kids. And I imagine there were similar theaters all throughout the country that had the same thing. And I know in this day and age where literally you've got movies by Paul Schrader coming out direct to VOD, that the concept of a movie like Ghoulies Go to College getting a theatrical release must sound like a joke, but it actually used to happen. And a pretty major theatrical release, because 750 theaters, that's
0: a good, what, two-thirds, three-quarters of the country?
2: Especially back then when we didn't have quite so many of those You didn't <clears> have the theaters, yeah. yeah. Actually,
1: I saw Ghoulies, the first one, in theaters, and I think it was at a drive-in. Well, so... Ghoulies was actually a pretty
0: big hit. Uh, I think that one, it it cost $400,000 worldwide. It made $34 million. That's a pretty big hit, I think, theatrically, don't you? Oh, yeah, definitely.
2: That would be a big hit. And if you were a Charles band, that would have been good money.
1: <laughs> where I grew up, we didn't have a whole lot of, I want to use the term independent theaters that then, you know, your big, ch- not your big chains. So I think outside of ghoulies, I, this was the first I'm learning that some of them had theatrical releases. Yeah. it. it that's what's kind of
0: funny is people think of these movies as just, you know, these were direct to video drac, and they weren't, these were theatrical. And I mean, hell, do you remember metal storm? The, the, yeah. secret, the, the what was it? Destruction the of Jared Sin. The destruction of Jared Sin. <laughs> he got Universal to release that nationwide <laughs> on a thousand
2: screens. <laughs> in 3D. You'd never get that today, would you? Well, wasn't at the same time Paramount got a uh, coming at you released, uh distributed coming at you? It was would... That's back when being a good huckster salesman, as you said, the the hustler thing. That's back when being a hustler worked. Oh, absolutely. Cecil, you said
0: that that they were cranking these things out. A lot of these were pickups, though. Mm -hmm. Empire didn't make a lot of these. They only made maybe one out of every four movies that they released. Otherwise, they were just quickie pickups.
2: Ah, something Lloyd Kaufman picked up on later. Exactly.
3: Yeah, Yeah, they kind of were absorbing what what they considered uh, something that could be marketable. So, yeah, I mean, essentially. Full Moon was a little bit more uh, of the, you know, where they were just making stuff as, as much as they could and cranking it out.
0: Well, and I think Band tried to do that in the Empire days. There was a slogan that that even Cannon laughed at when Band said, you got to remember, this is like 1982, 1983. He said 2000 movies by the year 2000.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I,
0: I, is that hubris?
2: And, uh, even Corman would laugh at that, but like... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously.
0: And also, for whatever reason, Band fell in love in the Empire days with 3D. He th- really thought this was going to be a gimmick that was going to stick around. He had Metal Storm, Parasite with Demi Moore was in 3D. He had another movie that was released in 3D. Ghoulies, the entire third act, remember when the kid puts on the 3D goggles? Everything mm-hmm. after that was supposed to be shot in 3D. He really thought this 3D thing was not going away.
2: Speaking of which, I guess uh, Rachel Talalay must have saw that last act of Ghoulies, huh?
0: Empire, and this is where I don't understand Band being a hustler, how this happens. You look at, like I put it out on Ghoulies, half, under a half a million dollar budget, made $34 million, yet Empire was always struggling for money. How does that mm-hmm. happen?
3: Well, isn't that kind of something that Hollywood is notorious for, where no movie ever really pulls in a profit? There probably was a lot of shady dealings and whatnot. I mean, not probably. There absolutely was some shady dealings where uh, the money was coming in and maybe X amount was going into this guy's pocket and, and instead of going, you know, into the studio where it should have to kind of keep it going. So I'm sure a ton of it was just blown notoriously on on things that it shouldn't have
2: also as a matter of course let's be honest some people's reach exceeds their grasp and flush with whatever capital he did get after the creative accounting he decided to build his quote-unquote empire on that money and put all these projects into production When you do that, all you need is one or two losers, or one or two bad deals, and suddenly that big pocket of change you had has now dwindled down to a little bit, and you've got to scramble to keep in business.
0: And that that did indeed happen. Look at Troll. Troll was one of the widest releases that Empire ever had, and while it wasn't a flop, it only barely made back its budget, so they released it wide. When you take into publicity, that movie probably lost money, and, and that was sort of the end that's when empire started really starting to check kite and when band eventually about a year later had the company physically removed from him
1: well eventually later on when other people started realizing the gold mine that was home video there was a huge oversaturation of the market well yeah and band was also one of the first real
0: innovators in that field not even just the fact that he did it do you guys remember one of Wizard Video's marketing campaigns? Too gory for the silver screen.
2: Oh, yeah, for the 10-year-olds <laughs> of America, that's, why don't you just go ahead and show them a pair of kitten Navidad's titties to get them to rent that thing? That That's gold. Well, <laughs> oh, they
1: still use that all the time for the home video releases of stuff that was in theaters. Are
2: like The stuff's oh, that's too right. shocking for theaters, yes, even though... It's yes, too intense for American screens, so we just added one extra shot of blood to get you the double dip. But the way Band did it
0: was he knew that these shot on video movies like Mutant Hunt and Necropolis, were (laughs) that they could not compete with even something like Ghoulies that was shot on film and had real actors in it. So he just said, "We'll, we'll just market this as this movie is so intense, it just could not be released theatrically.
2: Well, let's be honest. It's kind of brilliant though, Mike, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, honestly, it's just the graduation from William Castle is just taking it to another level. It's something you're not going to get anywhere else is the implied st- sentiment of it. You, you go to some theater, sit down and, you know, your granny's vibrator rubs on your seat and they call it the tingler. In this case is you're going to see the extra blood and gust that the man doesn't want you to see.
3: Mutant Hunt, I re- now that you mention it, I remember how you were talking, how they would push that, you know, where it was like too bloody or too intense for the silver screen. And then it would go straight to video because that was a great marketing angle. There was no other way they could push this. Stuff. I mean, no, you put that on the shelf and nobody cares. But as soon as you tell somebody, well, you couldn't see this in theaters, but now because of home video, you can see it. Well, people are going to go rent that. Mutant Hunt was a perfect example. I was freaking out to watch this movie. So when it finally came out, I got it, I brought it home, I watched it, it stunk.
0: <laughs> but that <laughs> poster, that that cover art was just amazing, wasn't it?
3: Oh, the part with the dude with the arm, and he's holding the guy up in the air, it's awesome. I love it. But the thing was, even though it stunk, I still the next day went over to my buddy's house and was like, you have to watch this movie, it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I guess it still worked on you technically then.
3: Oh yeah, <laughs> I own a copy of it.
1: Cover art was why I rented the majority of those. That was their big best marketing tool, in my opinion, was all the cover art.
0: Well, and Band also in this era also came up with, again, a couple of ideas. The first one was something Corman had been doing right around the same time, so I, I wouldn't put one over the other. But the second one I'm going to bring up was something that even Corman hadn't come up with yet. The first one was... He would buy cheap Filipino movies and then overdub them and then hire someone like Linda Blair to shoot a couple of scenes in the middle of New York City and then use her as a framing device to frame all the Filipino stuff that's now been overdubbed as a flashback to like, you know, Linda Blair with one day of shooting in New York is searching for her sister that's now, you know, the white slave or on the savage island.
1: Didn't Fred Olin Ray do that a lot with junk Carradine?
0: L- later on, yeah, but band was was like you know i can I can hire Linda Blair for a day's shooting, and then with this completely inexpensive Filipino movie I bought, you spend you know ten grand to over to redub it, and you've <laughs> got now a releasable film that makes a hundred thousand dollars its first week on home video. It might seem so commonplace now, but that was pretty genius.
3: Yeah, that's a great idea. I mean, uh to a lesser extent or I guess maybe to a greater extent. Godfrey Ho kind of took the similar thing except he chopped, you know, the movies in half and made multiple movies out of one movie. But um uh, yeah, the the doing that that's horrible, but it's brilliant because that way people are tricked into thinking that they're going to see a Linda Blair movie or a major, you know, whoever would be a star at that time, rent it and then She'd be in it for all of 10 minutes and the rest of it would be some weird overdubbed and a lot of times poorly dubbed Filipino movie. Yeah, I've been duped a couple times with it.
2: Well, the one thing we always have to keep in mind about this thing is as being, you know, film geek buffs, we see behind the curtain a little bit more than the average audience. I am always I always have to give these guys kudos for the fact that a lot of these little tricks, my mom's not going to get it. My sister's not going to get it. My roommate's not going to get it. They're just going to think they saw a bad movie but they still saw it. With us, it becomes something different because after we see it, we're now trying to piece it together. Okay, it was okay? so did Linda Blair, you know, was she about to go into rehab? Did she need the money? <laughs> did he owe her a favor? Was he paying her bail? How did he get her in this? Where did they shoot this? Oh my god, did they shoot all this at the same train station in one day and then just do ADR and then add it to a Filipino movie? So, at least long-term benefits for that sort of thing. I like the fact that a, it led to several other directors doing the same thing, and B, you gotta kind of almost admit the chutzpah it takes to literally say, I'm gonna make this piece of shit at least semi-releasable. To be fair,
0: though, that was something rather new. I mean, like I said, him and Corman were doing this at about the same time. That was a unique approach to save money.
2: And they were all ripping off Woody Allen. I'm
1: kidding. It is a remarkable marketing move, and I'm gonna side with Mike on it, that you know, us being the film buffs we are, we've l- learned to see through it, but, you know, like Cecil, we were, we've all been duped at least once, I'm sure.
0: Well, and then the other thing that he came up with, which even Corman hadn't done at this point, I don't even know if Corman ever, I, I don't know, Corman probably would have considered this desperate, but knowing Corman, he might have thought, he might have been pissed at band for coming up with it first. <laughs> Again, something that we think of in the internet age, and even by the 90s video age, something is so common, the comp tape. Charles Band created what we think of as the comp tape. He would hire the Carradines. He had Keith Carradine, Robert Carradine, John Carradine, and David Carradine hosting the best of sex and violence. All it was was all the booby and blood shots from all of the Empire films edited into one film. Basically, you don't need to rent all these other movies. You just buy this one tape. We know this is what you're buying this tape for anyway
1: genius but you would buy that tape and then you'd want to go see the movies that were you had the clips of
3: he actually uh is still doing that totally don't remember the name of it off the top of my head but uh i i you know i'm on their newsletter and they had just announced not that long ago that they had put out some kind of compilation and it was hosted by fred williamson and then they had another one that was hosted by like some either playboy or penthouse girl and uh, so I guess the one was all the violence with Fred Williamson. And then uh, the one, you know, with the with the Playboy girl or whatever was all like the the crazy nudity that they that, that was just cut from all of their later films. So it's kind of funny that now that you mention that, that this is still something going on.
0: Well, and he 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 had a couple of innovative ones, too, like Zombie Thon, which he actually had a woman being chased by zombies running into a movie theater. And then she would see all the best zombie clips, including like the eyeball scene and the shark scene from Fool Zombie and whatnot. And it was just, it was, hey, all the best zombie clips. Or the one that I think was the most innovative was Film Gore. He hired Elvira. This is at the height of Elvira's popularity. He hired Elvira to host it. All of her segments were written by Forrest J. Ackerman of all people. And it was basically digest sized versions of movies like Driller Killer and Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It was the whole 90-minute movie, edited down to 15 or 20 minutes, and you'd be surprised
2: how well they actually flowed in these little blocks. Honestly, it's weird how people like Corman and Band and others of that ilk It's like they look almost to the – they come from the streets to a certain respect as far as like they're considered street urchins compared to the bigwigs. So some a lot of their ideas come from the street because to me the idea of the comp tape was already out there. But it was just amateur fans doing it for other amateur fans. Like if you went to a Fangoria Weekend of Horrors, there was some guy sitting there holding this little patchwork handwritten tape called The Best of Savini Volume 1. To me, it was no different because I was in underground hip hop at the time. The concept of the mixtape, which used to be something that only existed underground, then someone mid-level, not a bigwig, discovered it and put it out to the mainstream masses. And then eventually, the big dogs pick up on it and it becomes, you know, a you know to the point of where you end up with. Uh, does anyone remember Terror in the Isles? Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Violent clips, and then you know, every now and then lecturing us for liking them. So <laughs> but I have to give Ban once again his props and unfortunately and this is something I've made a personal philosophy of mine sometimes it ain't always best to be the first sometimes it's best to be the best cuz sometimes when you're first all you end up being is the guy who got ripped off.
1: Actually, I want those comp tapes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> he's actually he's actually put most of them out on DVD now under uh, the very wrongly worded I think Full Moon Grindhouse. I, I think he doesn't understand what the whole Grindhouse thing. He should have marketed it as like the Full Moon Video Store or something. But but Film Gore and Best of Sex and Violence Zombiethon, all those are at Full Moon's website.
1: I've Actually, come across um, DVDs of those lately, though they're not comp tapes. They're just trailer comps. That most of it is stuff that's released through Full Moon or whomever. Plus like one or two memorable cult trailers.
0: We also can't deny that band you know, is still in the Empire era here. He gave the start to a lot, maybe not as much as Corman did, but a lot of people that would go on to much bigger and better things, like Stuart Gordon, Brian Yuzna, Demi Moore. He worked with a lot of people that would later go on to be bigger names. Jowski, David Dakota got his start. <laughs> I know how much you love Yes, he did. And a Decoto, talking
3: cat.
1: <laughs> a talking cat. He goes from, like, the awesomeness of Puppet Master 3 and to... And Creepazoids. Talking, yeah, and Creepazoids to
2: a talking cat. <laughs> oh, and don't forget, uh, also on Parasite, some young buck named Stan Winston was doing those effects. In 3D. Yes. Yeah. Some of his
0: movies are more famous than people give them credit for. Such as Dungeon Master, or if you're in the UK, Rage War. That's the origin of I reject your reality, and I substitute my own. Most people know that from Mythbusters. That's from Dungeon Master.
2: And not to mention the fact that that was also one of the original, uh, I guess you could almost call it a spiritual sequel to Casino Royale. Did you see that list of directors on that damn thing?
0: Yeah, there's like seven of them. Well, (laughs) because it was a
2: pseudo-anthology, kind of. Kind of, sort of, maybe not really. We have to somehow find a way to sell this kind of project. Well, and he also, at that time, had
0: made a deal with a couple of record labels. That's why you'd see bands like Wasp and and some of these other metal bands showing up in some of his horror movies. It was a cross-marketing
2: deal. Oh, that takes some of the magic out of it, because just them popping up out of nowhere in Dungeon Master is awesome.
0: Well, okay, in your mind, then then consider them just being part of that then, okay? (laughs) Okay. Empire started to kind of fall apart when the money issues and the accounting issues came into effect and he he had wizard video which was which was doing really good wizard was putting out the original releases of movies like I spit on your grave at the time nobody could have seen just how innovative this was at the time you have to remember when an exploitation movie ran at a drive-in they pretty much made all their run all their money during that run Because the movie Like I Spit on Your Grave has no future on network TV, no future on UHF TV, and HBO is still in its infancy, so that's not even an option. So when Band went up to these people and offered them $5,000 for the rights to their movie in perpetuity, and I'm quoting him, they saw it as nothing more than found money. That's how he still is able to put out I Spit on Your Grave on VHS. And even he said the, the video thing was so new Even his lawyer didn't know how to write up the contract for these things. That's just, that's how new this video thing was then.
3: He was smart. You got to give it to him. I mean, the fact that he was able to look into that and jump on the opportunities to lock those things down, it's great. I mean, uh, maybe they could do better in different hands, but it definitely was a great idea. I mean, because he saw where the market was going. And he locked in as many of these as he could for whatever relatively small amounts of money. There were so many of these that, like you said, where they weren't looking into the future. They were just like, well, you know, we had this released in theaters and the best we can do is maybe re-release them in theaters a few years from now. But, hey, here's money now, you know, so, you know, we'll sell it to these guys and ah, eh, whatever they're going to do with it. And then they go on and they start making way more money by, you know, once the VHS uh, boom rolled around.
2: Yeah, you got to hand it to him. It's it's those guys that, that see the potential for the future that tend to be the ones who get away with this sort of thing. Because this story to me sounds very, very similar to a young Hugh Hefner sitting at his kitchen table saying, I need something to set this magazine apart. And then he stumbles across the Marilyn Monroe photos and he's the only one willing to pay for them and put them out there and we all see what happened then. It's just a case of, are you willing to put your money where your mouth is when you believe that what you have is the right idea? Although I will admit, you know, 20 years down the line, maybe the original filmmaker, maybe maybe cut him in just, you know, a little bit. <laughs> you know, we kind of know what kind of money you're going to make on the project now.
1: Well, you have to respect the reason why people, a lot of people hate Charles Band, because he was a brilliant opportunist, you know. It's like, wow, he made a lot of money doing that. That's brilliant, but you could see why the people hate him for doing that. Well, and then also he is directly responsible, both financially and
0: production-wise, for a couple of cult classics being as good as they are. Mike, you brought up earlier, Reanimator. Not only people don't seem to realize that that wasn't an Empire pickup. Ban helped executive produce that, put up the money for it. Okay, you know how good that movie is because of all the stuff that they cut out? Band is the one that insisted they cut out that idiotic subplot about the hypnosis and that insisted that, that they tighten the edit and, the, and then the insistence on releasing the film unrated. Who knows if Band hadn't gotten involved how that film would have turned out.
2: Sometimes you need a perfect... Uh, intersection of art and commerce and let's be honest it was gordon's first flick and he did come from the theater world so the potential for pretentiousness was there you probably needed a cigar chump and charles band come on doll you can't put that in my picture we gotta sell it to the kiddies. you gotta cut out that crazy hypnosis stuff and throw me some more boobies in this bad boy
0: sam Raimi, scott spiegel and bruce campbell with the intruder band is the one that paid for that helped them tighten the edit and he was the one that released intruder cuz you got to remember at this time Evil Dead had kind of come and gone hadn't made the splash that it would and Maniac Cop and Evil Dead 2 are still down the road who knows if we would have gotten the Sam Raimi Bruce Campbell or Scott Spiegel we had now we have now if it hadn't been for Charles Band
3: absolutely that's just again showing how uh like Mike had said sometimes you need that right amount of um producer kind of overseeing things now the majority of the time i will side with the director because it's the director's vision that really wants to you know push things forward to try to get it you know uh his vision out there and a lot of times producers will come in and they won't see the bigger picture they'll want the movie to be done a certain way to make it more marketable to make it more appealing and whatnot but sometimes like in the case with reanimator uh because there's the um Stuart Gordon did the the commentary on that. He was talking about how much he came from. He came from the theatrical background and uh, it was a little bit more flamboyant and Band did kind of come in and push it to be tighter edit and to flow and to get rid of uh, the excess. And as it stands, it is a really quick movie that gets in, it does its thing and it gets out. It doesn't drag and it's really good. And there is a chance that It might not be the classic that it is today if he kind of didn't get in there and tool with it.
0: Also the fact that I don't think even Corman would have risked releasing a movie like that unrated on 500 screens
1: back then. I don't think anybody would risk releasing anything unrated on 500 screens at any point in time. Band did. Uh, Yes, he did. (laughs)
0: He almost was going to do the same thing with From Beyond. From Beyond, which was right at the tail end of the Empire era, from Beyond almost got an X rating as well. And he was—he he almost said, you know what? Fuck it. Just release it unrated. I don't care. I'm not editing the movie for you people. You kind of got to admire that, don't you?
2: Oh, definitely. But I will say, at least in the case of From Beyond, I'm kind of glad they went with an R-rated cut because that's one mentally fucked up movie. So even when you cut away some of the visceral stuff, that's a hard R in my opinion.
0: Okay, so now we're to the point. Band has basically lost control of Empire. He's had the company bought out from underneath them. He did what, what any logical person in his position would do. I'm done with theatrical distribution. This home video thing is hitting big. Let's make movies direct to video. He wasn't the first to do this. He was the first to make an entire company that did this.
3: first encounter with full moon probably probably crash and burn i was very excited because it was a kind of follow up to robot jocks but not really
0: kind of sort of almost maybe
3: yeah you know it's it's like but it was still awesome i was so excited i i had a um i had a calendar the girl i knew who who worked at the video store they she had gotten this calendar and it was a full moon specific calendar and it had uh, each month it had a different poster art for a different movie.
0: And I want this calendar. <laughs> I,
3: I believe I still have it. I'll see if I can if I can hunt for it and I'll, I'll send you. Some, I'm not going to send you the calendar, but I'll send you pictures of it. Bastard. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I got my collection, too. And every month uh, I would I'd call, you know, I would head over to the store and I'm like, you know, what what full moon movie is coming out this month? And she'd be like, okay, well, this month is something called subspecies. And I'm like, I reserve it. I want it. You know, next month is uh, uh, Dollman. And I'm like, Tim Thomerson? Yes. So uh, that was kind of my my ritual, was just constantly going there and looking to see, you know, what new Full Moon movie was coming out that I absolutely had to get and had to watch.
2: I'm trying to remember... Exactly which one it was. It's a toss up between either Doll Man or Meridian, but I'm angling more towards Meridian because I honestly think, in addition to the cover, I believe he released that right about the same time that I started hearing about this thing David Lynch was working on called Twin Peaks. And I think that's what got my interest. And just like Cecil, it was another case of I'm getting a real kind of crazy new world. Uh, meets SCTV kind of vibe from this company. And it's from the makers of Reanimator and From Beyond, so I've got to check them out, even though at the time I was too naive to notice uh, Stuart Gordon's name and Brian Yenza was nowhere near most of these projects. After a while, I started to appreciate them for what they were, because, I mean, this was going to become a sequel-turning factory. I mean, it, would it transfers in that number 9 or 10? and 6. <laughs> something like that. Six. And subspecies eventually became vampire journals, and then turned back into subspecies. And, yeah, so you know,
0: five if you count vampire journals.
2: Yeah, and no one counts vampire journals, but anyway, <laughs> puppet bats were
1: still going.
2: Yeah, puppet <laughs> you know, was what, say, 13 thirteen, fourteen now. And I, think, I will say, appreciate the fact that by churning them out, people like David Allen still had a place to work.
0: And then you mentioned you were getting a new world kind of vibe off this. That was one of the stingers of, at the end of the Empire era. When Empire Folded, New World bought all their assets, both their studio space and all their equipment, and their last three or four pickups that they had. Considering that New World was their biggest competitor, that had to sting a little bit.
2: It had to. That had to,
0: that had to sting just a tad.
1: My first encounter with Full Moon was watching Puppet Master 2 on cable and loving it. My friends and I would go down and we rented the rest of that series, and Full Moon... Videos were front loaded and back loaded with nothing but trailers and selling Full Moon. So that was that was the other thing that Band kind of jumped
0: on. He was the first one to put extras on the video, the Full Moon video zone, the trailers, because even and we'll go talk about Paramount a little bit more in a in a bit. Since Paramount was distributing most of the Full Moon stuff, Paramount didn't want to pay for the extra tape that the twenty minute Full Moon video zones would take up. So that that extra tape that extra 20 minutes which might add what an ounce to the shipping weight paramount said that comes out of your end we refuse to pay for that we're distributing the movie if you insist on giving this thing extras that's that's your problem
1: again an innovation that even corman didn't do at that point all of those and we got motivated and we'd go out and we'd rent full moon and it was like a mark of quality for us we're like i don't know about this oh wait it says full moon sold So the title
0: didn't matter. It was the company at that point. You were a company man, weren't you, Alex? Yes, we were.
3: I watched every video zone. It was, uh, they were great. A lot of them were hosted by, uh, Charlie Spradling, who I had a major crush on. And, uh, she was just that quintessential, like cool, uh, eighties chick, or no, well now nineties chick. They always had, uh, it was like a tiny bit of behind the scenes stuff. And then, non-stop trailers for all their upcoming stuff so it got you excited because you felt like you were watching something that was fresh and new and there wasn't really anything else out like there like that at the time and a lot of them really just kind of showed the same content but i didn't care i watched it you know i'd watch the movie and then i'd watch the video zone and then i would just chomping at the bit to get whatever their next release was
2: yeah the behind the scenes thing I think I could speak pretty much probably for all of us. Uh, back then coming up, getting your hands on that kind of stuff was actually kind of difficult. So wherever you found it, you kind of appreciated it. The same thing I noticed with videos on was the fact that I'm, I'm not, I can't say this for certainty, but I think some money might have changed hands between full moon and Cinefantastic and Fangoria because they lived in those magazines. Uh, they would always have the back cover ad and they would always have incredibly in-depth coverage of what was going on to the point of where it felt like maybe it was written by the studio, and then they just put a name on it. But, behind, I, noticed, but
0: I noticed that too, Mike, so you're not the only one. Yeah. I, again, I can't speak to whether it's true or not, but I had the same kind of tone off that.
2: I will admit that, but I will also say that just any time you have that, if you're interested in filmmaking at a time when finding that information was very difficult, The fact that it was coming out of his pocket just makes it all the more like, wow, this is something you really actually did believe in. And for those of us that got interested in how media works and how the things we like are made, it was a blessing.
0: You know, since it was coming out of his end, we got to bring up Paramount. Somehow, he inked a deal with Paramount to be his distributor for Full Moon. That was a major, major coup for this. I mean, if you want to count Full Moon as a new company since... Technically, he moved from Empire. That was a big coup.
3: Oh, absolutely! It was massive because Paramount. I mean, having that major a distributor pushing what is essentially really low budget features. It was there was nobody else out there doing that at the time. That was of that level. So I think that also helped to get more of the videos in stores and on shelves and get that um, that curb appeal. You know where people would see these really awesome, po- you know, all, all these really awesome posters, and these awesome covers, and you know you'd go to the store and there'd be ten of them lined up on the wall. Well, that you know they they would sell themselves and it would be like you look at it and you'd be like, oh well, Paramount put this out. Well, this must be good.
1: I didn't realize that it was Paramount putting it out at the time. It wasn't until. Years later, when there was like a rights issue between Full Moon and Paramount over Puppet Master movies.
0: I was going to get to that down the line, but since you brought it up, let's talk about that. (laughs) The Puppet Masters were obviously the biggest sellers, biggest renters. And then after the deal fell apart, pretty much when the DVD era started to come in, Paramount said, actually, we still own the distribution rights to the Puppet Masters. Band's like, no, you don't. And almost a five-year-long legal battle resulted in a judge saying, eh, Paramount does still hold the distribution rights. You own the actual films, but Paramount owns the distribution rights, so you're both right, you're both wrong.
1: And that's when Paramount made their horrible, horrible Puppet Master vs. Demonic Toys, the non-canonical crossover.
0: <laughs> which is which is kind of funny, considering that Dollman vs. Demonic Toys is the only movie I can think of that is a sequel to three separate movies at the same time. It's a sequel to Demonic Toys, it's a sequel to Man, and it's a sequel to Bad Channels, an early full moon movie.
1: I can't think of another film that does that, can you? Well, I don't you. know why they didn't keep up with that crossover stuff, because that was an amazing selling point. While I, That's why I went out and watched Bad Channels and Dollman, was because of Dollman versus Demonic Toys. And same thing with comics, when you'd have characters' crossovers, that, that would sell me on reading this other comic. And I don't know why more movies don't do that with their franchises. Banned at this point. I don't know if he tried to
0: start his own comic company, but he made deals with like Eternity Comics and a couple of other small comic companies. A lot of people don't realize there was a Jack Death comic book. There was a Trancers comic. There was Puppet Master comics. There was subspecies comics. Most of them only lasted three or four issues, but he was still thinking tie in, tie in, tie in.
2: Actually, it's funny you mention that. I think one of the things I did lose in one of my house fires was I actually did buy the first issue of the Puppet Master series. And I do think it said Full Moon Comics, but it was published by a third party.
0: I think he had to deal with Eternity, because I know that's where the subspecies and Jack Death comics were. So I would assume Puppet Master was also at Eternity.
2: But yeah, I mean, I'm with Alex. It seems to me like that would have been the logical conclusion. I mean... Think about today's comic book community. I mean, there isn't actually a book called Star Trek Meets Doctor Who. If you could combine combinations of your existing characters in ways that we didn't see coming, and, you know, if you could, maybe try to make them not suck.
0: Star Trek versus X-Men?
2: <laughs> yeah. Then basically, you you could ride that long enough to find the next big original thing that you could do, but, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty. but... They had the idea there. I mean, because I would have, let's, uh, you know, Puppet Master versus Herbert West. Who wouldn't want to see that?
3: When they took Bad Channels to uh, my toys and doll man and kind of merged them all together, I was always bummed that his sidekick was supposed to be Bunny. And then for whatever reason, the girl who was playing the character bailed and they brought in Nurse Ginger to be like his sidekick. And it was one of those like continuity things where it was like, oh, no, I'm like, she She was made back to normal size at the end of the movie, you know, and I'm a teenager at the time. And I'm all like, stinks, man. You're not following the continuity of really cornball, low budget movies. Nerd. Yeah. And proud.
0: Well, and one thing that Full Moon did also was they saw, Mike, you pointed out earlier, he saw a new emerging market. Band saw a new emerging market in kids. And I don't mean you know the teenagers that were renting the transfers movies and the subspecies movies. He created an imprint within Full Moon called Moonbeam, later renamed Pulse Pounders, that was kids and young teen oriented films. He released what was the most successful Full. And I don't know. And I don't know if he should be proud of this or not. That the most successful Full Moon title ever is Pre a shameless kids centric Jurassic Park knockoff actually was the highest selling videotape in the entire industry the month it came out it beat 20th century fox paramount everything because paramount was not distributing the moonbeam stuff that is that good or bad i would call it
2: good business
0: but is it good (laughs) for the business
2: long term for him obviously not unless he wanted to pull a dakota but i'm sure we'll be talking about that later but it was just one of those synchronistic moments. Wasn't it uh, just literally within two years of the release of the original Jurassic Park?
0: It might even have been the same year. I, I'd have to check If it up. fell
2: in on the same year, then the fates were on his side because that was the summer of dinosaur mania. But also on top of that, let's be honest, it's got a title that tells you from the get-go, this should be safe to plop my kids in front of while I go do my Black Tower heroine in the back. Mike always going dark. What can I say? It's where I live.
1: Well, I'm going to agree that it's good business. That if those were the people buying it, why not cater to your paying fan base if you want to make money? But is that good that you are catering to them or pandering to them? It just depends. Are you in this business to make money or are you in it for a specific image? Charles Band, clearly. Money. (laughs) <laughs> which is why nowadays he caters, like, purely to the stoner demographic with all them evil bong movies.
3: Well, I mean, you got to look at, like, what Pixar is doing now with planes. It It's a piece of crap that is a, a spinoff from Cars, which was their most successful... Which was a the, ripoff
0: of Doc Hollywood to begin with.
3: Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, it's just, they were pushing that, and uh, there's a... Uh, but it's probably going to make bank. And this was they, – they were capitalizing on, all right, well, we've already got this demographic of people that are watching our horror movies and sci-fi movies, and they're getting a little bit older, and now uh, we need to kind of appeal to a different market. So they you know, they did Pre- Prehistoria. They did uh, the Josh Kirby series. While we might kind of turn our nose up at it like, ugh, we're not going to watch this crap there was a whole bunch of people that would so
0: all of our little brothers did you you have to give charles band some credit he didn't jump on even in the empire days he didn't jump on one really almost like printing money trend that was happening in movies which i think does show that he at least does have the tiniest little piece of black coal moral center charles band has never made a slasher movie whether it was empire or full moon he said just some guy stabbing teens with, with garden implements? That's not a real movie to him.
2: Well, kudos to him for that. And I'll be honest, um, I'm the kind of person where truly reality-based horror like that doesn't appeal to me. There has to be some air of the, of the fantastic or just true cinematic craft. Like, to me, I don't consider Halloween a realistic movie, but I consider it an awesome movie. But it also might have been a case of maybe it wasn't so much a taste factor as just simply... It wasn't his thing. So it comes across as a taste factor, like we're not going to do this sort of thing, when at the end of the day it was simply him just saying, we're just not doing that because I don't like those movies. Either way, it still works out as at least it it basically said there was a line he personally wasn't willing to cross. Considering that I don't think Corman had that line, that's a big difference between those two.
3: I would have loved a full moon (laughs) slasher movie. I think it would have been spectacular. I think that um, honestly, I think the ginger dead man kind of does fall into the slasher thing. It's, it's similar to uh, the child's play movies if you want to put it in that category. So in a way he kind of is now doing that, but back in the, in the, the nineties, the full moon days when they were just on fire, I think they probably would have made an amazing uh, slasher movie.
1: I agree. They would have made an amazing slasher movie. I mean, I rented ginger dead man expecting an amazing slasher movie i i thought ginger dead man would be as much fun as demonic toys was you were wrong yeah i was <laughs> and then uh, what the hell they give ginger dead man two sequels but all i get's that horrible demonic toys 2 you know 20 years after the first one as as we've hinted at
0: you saw full moon start to It's not necessarily when Paramount dropped them as as distributors. It was right around that time that you started to see the budgets on Full Moon movies going down and down. Because look at something like the Oblivion movies. Just look at how amazing those look for, I I know I've bitched about how I shouldn't be saying only $2 million. But for (laughs) only $2 million, those movies looked great, didn't they? Let's put it this way with like Evil Bong 3 when you can't even afford Tommy Chong when he, when Tommy Chong is too expensive and Evil Bong 3 was literally shot in the full moon offices made to look like a dorm room there there's problems with the company
2: <laughs> Yeah, when you're getting when you're having budgetary issues that make internet critic videos look like they spent more money on their projects, <laughs> you may have a problem. There. But, you know, at the same time, you can't deny that apparently the spirit is still there. And let's call it spade a spade. When you're talking about things like the evil bong movies, he's not trying to make a half-baked or a dazed and confused for the smart stoner audience. He's going for the lowest common denominator stoned audience. That's going,
1: ha ha, they smoke weed, I smoke weed. That funny. Well, I've got a bunch of the more recent Full Moon stuff on those, like, 10 DVD packs, like, oh, here's 10 horror films. But yeah, Dakota depresses me now because, like we pointed out before, Creepazoids was great. Puppet Master 3 is, like, my favorite film of the Puppet Master series. And then, A Talking Cat. Dakota is one of those people that, to me, stopped being a
0: filmmaker and he literally is just making product now, and that's that's his way of thinking. A Talking Cat illustrates that I don't care what my budget is,
1: I just shoot it, print it, I, I'm not even caring anymore. Yeah, but he's following kind of in band's footsteps, because A Talking Cat was made for 20 bucks, <laughs> and it was dumped into a red box, and it was in a red box, and Netflix and stuff for the Here, I'm going to put this on for the kids while I go smoke my black tar heroin in the other room. That's (laughs) what purpose Dakota movies serve.
3: Mike, you're tainting him,
1: even
2: tangentially. (laughs) Even tangentially.
3: As as much as it hurts how uh, Full Moon really has has gone down the... Well, I shouldn't say Full Moon, but how much band has really dragged it down with him, at least it's finally forced his hand... And he started going through the old back catalog and releasing widescreen remastered versions of the old classics. You know, we finally got a widescreen version of, I think they're up to the third Puppet Master. Uh, They remastered subspecies, and so they're kind of going through their old catalog. They found the original version of uh, Trancers 1.5, and they're going to release that sometime later in the year. It, with all the garbage that they're going through right now and filming things in their own studios, at least there's kind of a bright star that it's like, all right, well, you know, we can still get these classics now because they need money.
0: Do you think that that Full Moon as we know it is over? Or do you think just like, just like you know, they had that, that late 90s lull and then they, they did come back up for a while, Ginger Dead Man and all the Killjoy sequels and the, the terrible new Puppet Masters did kind of bring them back up. Do you think Full Moon's lost to us?
3: Uh, No, I think that there is a possibility that they might come back. I mean, if they can get a decent enough amount of money and they can, I mean, uh, I think that band still has a good eye for what will sell. So maybe there'll be that perfect uh, storm of, all right, I've got... I've got $2 million, a really great script, and uh, David Decoto has decided to stop making the 1313 movies, get back into the directing chair and actually make something good, and they kind of pull it all together, and they release a new franchise that kind of does so well it revitalizes the, the, the whole thing. I would love for that to happen. I'm not saying that it will happen, but I think that there is a pretty good possibility.
1: Um, I would say that nowadays is catering to a niche audience he's not going for the general public or anybody that's willing to rent a movie like he did back in the day the killjoy movies they're made specifically for the people that are going to watch those and the people that do enjoy them same thing with evil bong it looks terrible it's horrible but people that like bongs like it which leads leads us into mine
2: (laughs) thank you (laughs) I would say that uh, I would like to think that the spirit is still there, but companies like that really need like at least one or two people at the top that are just like driving it, driving it, driving it. If he's kind of stepped back now and really isn't that interested, maybe I'm hoping maybe he's got a young intern or nephew or someone who could take that same kind of thinking and, and maybe apply it to the BOD slash internet era cause with the exception of trauma, it doesn't seem like any of those smaller companies that used to pride themselves on being the underdog are really taking true advantage of all the freedoms that are now available on the internet as far as like being able to be very specifically targeting the audience they're trying to get. Because the days of hoodwinking the whole general masses and the sneaking into seeing a ghoulies because Gremlins came out, that, that's, that doesn't exist anymore.
0: And they still have that amazing catalog. I mean, they, they've lost some of the Puppet Master movies. Uh, Stuart Gordon successfully reclaimed Reanimator from them. So th- they don't have a couple of the key ones. They've still got The Intruder and Parasite and all these old, they've got most of the old Empire stuff still. He's still got all this. I don't understand why he can't do something with this amazing library he
3: has. How, how is that not profitable? It's a shame because uh, there's so many of them that uh, people are screaming to have Blu-rays and DVDs of. And some of them still, you know, are languishing in, in VHS. They haven't made the transition. If they were put on DVD, they were put on DVD in full frame. And it's like, why? Why why will this kill you to actually release it in you know, widescreen, throw a couple of features on there? it'll sell there's the audience for it there's a market for it i absolutely would probably buy a huge portion of the old uh, full moon and empire films if they were available but they're not it's it, it doesn't make sense that they won't release a lot of the old ones they are releasing the bigger ones but there are a lot of smaller ones that they could release and it's it's easy money it's fa- you know it would be their version
1: of found money I would so buy their catalog if they ever released it. I agree. And Why don't they? Why? <laughs> why? I mean, why?
0: I, I'm thinking it has something to do with Capital, because when they released the first ten Full Moon Grindhouse ones, they had more on their website that said, these are coming. And it was like Sorority Babes in the Slimeball, bolarama and a couple of Fred Olin Ray movies, like Slave Girls from Beyond Infinity, and Beach Bimbos from Hell, and stuff like that. And it's been coming soon for about a year now. I'm thinking something financial has got to be holding up the release of these. There's there got to be something because Learly wants to put out more of these and they're just sitting on them for whatever reason. And I just don't understand that. So if you had to describe Empire and Full Moons as separate entities, give me your description of what you would tell somebody now about what Empire and Full Moon respectively were to you?
3: My childhood? Mostly more so Full Moon than Empire because discovered a lot more uh, Empire movies after I had gone through the, the Full Moon features. For me, I would just say that they were a large part of my younger years where I would just constantly go to the the video store and would rent these movies and would rent them over and over and over again and would more or less force my buddies to watch them because they were not nearly as much into b-movie cinema as i was like they were always whatever the big movie was coming they were always looking forward to the big a-list stuff and i was always kind of drawn more towards the b-list stuff because it just had more passion to it a lot of the a-list stuff they were just I don't know. I never, I mean, I, yeah, I do like a lot of A-list stuff, but I, my heart's always been with like the smaller productions. So, uh, I would just say that this was what kind of influenced me and what I really, really loved. And it brought my love of cinema to, I guess, an unusual level because it's not normal.
2: I would say empire to me, uh, represented, um, the scrappy can do spirit of like, uh, George Romero back in 69, or Troma, or uh Corman at his prime. And Full Moon represented, okay, I've got to make this a semi-viable business now and take advantage of the opportunities that are presented to me. But while doing that, I mean, he was doing it with movies with titles like Doll Man. So I've got to give him credit for that as well. To me, it was like uh Empire was. Coppola before Godfather, and basically uh, Full Moon is Coppola around the time of Jack.
1: I'm going to say Empire was my introduction to the other side of the horror genre, the side that's more about fun than about horror, and Full Moon was how I embraced that part of the genre.
0: To me, Empire was was one of those the, those Mini majors. It was almost like they were trying to be canon before canon, where they were trying to compete and they only had a certain type of product and they made it work for them. Because I actually, going between Full Moon and Empire, I, I look at the, the, the catalogs. I like the Empire catalog better than Full Moon's. As much as I love Full Moon, I like the Empire catalog better. But to me, Full Moon was the video store in the 1990s just seeing that logo that logo of the clouds covering the moon that was iconic as hell to me so where can we find cecil aka good bad flick
3: you can find me on uh, GoodBadFlicks.com. that is uh, f-l-i-c-k-s not f-l-i-x and also you can find me on geekjuicemedia.com
2: geekjuicemedia.com you can find me at mrxonline.com and some podunk operation called geekjuicemedia.com
0: of which I am also a part of. Imagine that. Also, 1201beyond.com, and you can contact the show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. Have a full moon night, guys. Come on in.